Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was, he, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ryan. My name is Lee Eric Fesco, and uh, before I begin, I'm the Director of Discipleship at Christ Pres. I was asked to dismiss the children, so at this time, uh, ages, well, you know the ages. I'm, I'm the visitor here. You, you know what to do now. <laughs> this is the time we're doing it. My name, again, is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the Director of Discipleship at Christ Pres, and allow me to say thank you for, for having me. It's always a real treat for me to be here especially when Russ is not here. <laughs> I will commit to you, that, that'll be the only swipe that I'll take at Russ today. We tease each other a lot, often publicly, and when I do, I always have to clarify how much I love uh, and respect uh, Pastor Russ Ramsey. I hope you all know what a wonderful pastor you have. He is a uh, tremendous friend as well. Uh, my wife Tracy and I, we have two boys, and they're both teenagers now, but back when they were much younger, my uh, oldest son was maybe six years old when he had his first trip to the emergency room. Fortunately, it wasn't for anything terribly serious. He, he was running, and he, he wanted to see how fast his legs moved as he ran. And so as he was running, he was staring at his legs like this, and then he ran headfirst right into a divider of a, of a double doorway, just right on the top uh, uh, of, uh, of his head. So I was able to ascertain right away after he had that little uh, incident that we were going to need to go to the ER. And my first impulse was to say, I, I think we're, this is in a public place, so I, I, my first impulse was to say, I think we're going to need to call uh, an ambulance. And my son heard me say ambulance, and he hollered in terror, no, please, don't call an ambulance. Just, just the word itself, ambulance, was enough to send him into a panic. And so I said, we're going to need to get you to the hospital quickly. Hospital, he said. The word hospital, just the word itself, hospital, was enough to, to terrify him. And to that I said, listen, we need to go to the hospital because I think you're going to need stitches. Stitches! <laughs> Not stitches! I don't want stitches! Just the word itself was enough to send him uh, into uh, paralysis with fear. Listen, I told him. You probably won't even feel it because they'll give you a shot to... A shot! <laughs> Not a shot. Just the word itself was enough to, to send him into an unglued, sobbing mess. Finally, I said to him, you know, I know this sounds terrible, but we, we have to do this. 
I'm going to be with you the whole time. And I'll take you there myself, no ambulance. And hey, you know what? I know they've made all kinds of advancements in this area from when I was a kid. They probably don't even use stitches anymore. I think they literally use glue now. They glue your head literally right back together. And when we got to the ER, my son asked the doctor directly, am I going to need stitches? And the doctor said, oh, no, no. We'll use staples. <laughs> staples. Just the word itself. I don't know if a, if a six-year-old has ever had a heart attack, but I began to wonder that immediately. Staples, just the word itself, made me wonder if it induced a heart attack in my child. Our passage today begins with the word servants. Now, now that's a word that makes a whole bunch of us wince. Just the word alone. And if that weren't enough to remove all ambiguity about what we're talking about here, it's quickly followed by the word masters. Masters and servants, or masters and slaves, as it's rendered in, in many translations. It's an uncomfortable topic, and it's a pair of words that triggers all kinds of thoughts, fears, and feelings, and strong emotions, and regrettably, we'll often try and sanitize it when we come across it in a biblical context by noting that, well, slavery during this time wasn't like the slavery that many of us associate with, with the word, like in, in the colonial Americas or, or up to the Civil, civil War. Well, that may be true, but the Apostle Peter didn't begin this discourse on servants and masters because it was easy. You know, he didn't, he didn't begin this, this topic this way uh, because things were going great in this area. You see, he's talking about servants and masters in the greater context of suffering. Suffering. So why didn't Peter take this opportunity to condemn the practice of slavery? Don't you see? The foundation for the abolition of slavery, the abolition of slavery in England and the Americas was built upon these very passages. He's detailing us for us a system of mutual submission. Honor everyone, he says. Why? Because look at what Jesus did. Look what Jesus did. Let's take a closer look at, as to the case that he's building here. And let's back up a little bit to, to give you a quick reminder of where we've been in the book of 1 Peter and also remind us where we're going. The Apostle Peter is writing a letter to a group of Christians, perhaps a, a collection of churches that's been scattered all across Asia Minor. And the reason they've been scattered is because they're facing all kinds of persecution, suffering. Nero was likely the emperor at the time, and, and he didn't think too highly of Christians. So, yes, they found themselves scattering under the threat of persecution and even death. So Peter has instruction for him, and the, and, and the first chapter of 1 Peter almost serves as, as one giant reminder telling the church who they are. You're a chosen people. You're God's elect. You're, you're born again. You have an inheritance. You have an internal inheritance. And then what we're reminded again in the passage that we looked at last week, he reminded them that they are exiles and sojourners, telling them that their citizenship lies in heaven with Christ, not, not here your citizenship and your, your ethic, your heavenly ethic lies in heaven, not here. That's who you are. That, that's, that's who you are. That's what Peter is telling the church. And it applies to you all here as well, too. That's who you are. So in light of that, in light of that, and he turns the corner on his letter now telling them the specifics on what that should look like in the life of a Christian. Because you're all those things, live your lives this way. And the first thing he says is honor everyone. And by everyone, I mean everyone. Honor the emperor. Honor, 
Honor the emperor? You mean, you mean Nero? The one who's chasing us from our, our homes? The one who's killing our relatives? The one who literally burned down Rome and then blamed the Christians for it? Honor him? In not so few words to that, Peter says, yes, even him. That's not easy. He's having to tell them this because it's hard. This is hard. These are hard words, but we have to remember when we get to these hard passages, we have to consider them in light of who we are, who we are in Christ and what he did. And with that, Peter tells them, echoing the teaching of of Romans 13 from Paul, which tells us the only reason that anyone has any authority at all is because God put them in that position. God put them in the position they hold. God ordained it. It's not accidental. It's ordained by God. And so we honor the emperor, not because they deserve it, but because their position, because of their position's origin, because of their position, whether they uphold it well or not, reflects a heavenly ethic. Their position, whether they uphold it or not, has roots in the heavenly ethics of maintaining order and carrying out justice. And imperfect as they are carried out, they are reflections of what will one day be made perfect with the completion of all things. We honor and support the work of the civil servant so long as it doesn't contradict God's commands. We honor and support their work by doing all they can to reflect the future perfected reality of Christ's kingdom. And so by that same rationale, Peter then moves from honoring the authority of the civil magistrate to, honoring, to servants honoring the authority of their masters. The only reason your masters have any authority at all is because God gave it to them. He moves on from Nero to the Neros of a smaller scale. The Nero that directly impacts you and me every day. Honor, honor him? And Peter says, yes, for all the same reasons I asked you to honor the emperor, I want you to honor your master, and not just the good ones, he says. And he goes on to say, and this is where the, the rubber really meets the road here. There's no getting around this. He says, it's no credit to you if you were beaten because you did something wrong, because you sinned. And then he specifically calls out sin, not just making an error or, or making a mistake. It's no credit to you if you were treated harshly as a result of your own sin. And then he goes on to say, but if you did nothing wrong, if you did nothing wrong, if you did well and then are mistreated, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, he says. And so if we're being honest with ourselves, we have to stop here and ask God, why? Why, Lord, are you a, are you a masochist? I don't understand this. Why on earth would it be a gracious thing for someone to do well? To do something good and be mistreated for it, why, Lord, is this a, a gracious thing? When we use the word gracious here in the Greek, it says, this is grace of God. This is grace of God. To be mistreated in response to you doing something good is the grace of God. Why? Shouldn't we say it's, it's commendable or, or high, of high integrity? No, that's not what it says. When your superior mistreats you for doing good, it is the grace of God. Please explain. Make it make, it make sense. Uh, I don't know if this will be hard for you to imagine, but when I was a kid, uh, my hair grew not long but, but tall. And it was before I discovered I knew anything about hair products, so my hair more closely resembled shrubbery than actual hair. 
back when I was a kid, the hairstyle that was in was the one that placed the, 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 the part of the hairline right down the middle. So one day when I, come home, I came home from school and I told my mom that I wanted to part my hair in the middle, she looked at me with that face that said, this, this is going to be hard. When my son was a bit younger, he too came home one day asking for a very specific haircut. And I just had to laugh remembering going through this when I was a kid when I was younger, but, but now I'm on the parent side, which for me presents all kinds of questions that go along with the request. Mom, Dad, I'd like for my haircut to do... And then he described it for us. It was a specific, I want it close on the sides, a little longer on the top so it swoops down, you know, that look. And to be honest, it wasn't my favorite look on my son, but we thought we'd let him try it out. And then one day I saw him leaving school and he, and he was walking next to another kid from his class and his, his friend had the exact same haircut. They looked like twins. And then I had all the questions. Who, who's that? <laughs> you know, uh, what's his name? Who, who are his parents? You know, why am I asking those questions all of a sudden? Why is that important? All of a sudden. Because I wondered if the child had such influence on my son that it made him want to change his physical appearance, how else is he influencing my child? I wanted to know. Who had, who had the haircut first, you or him, right? And you see why I'm concerned. Again, if this child had enough influence on him that he changed his hair, in what other ways might he influence my child? See, if my child is imitating another child... You have to understand this. Imitation shapes you in the mold of the one that you're imitating. Imitation shapes you in the mold of the one that you're imitating. Now, that can be a good thing. That's why we want to surround our kids with kids who are a, a good influence, we'll say. You know, have you ever com- contemplated what that means, a good influence? That means an influence to the degree that the good behavior is replicated. And so this is Peter's first point as to why it is grace from God to have your superior mistreat you for doing good because of who you are imitating. In in whose footsteps do you walk? Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps, so that you might imitate him. But here's the difference between imitating Jesus and and copying someone's haircut. I know you all are familiar with the word vocation. When we speak of a vocation, we're usually speaking in reference to our jobs, the job that we're engaged in throughout the day, the thing that occupies, in most cases, the bulk of your time. But the word vocation is built on the Latin root voco, which means calling. So you might think of Peter telling the sufferer, for this you have been called, or, or, or this is your vocation. This is your full-time job, to be following in the footsteps of Christ as a sufferer. So when we think of one who was mistreated for doing good, the standard bearer in that regard, the one whom we imitate and are being shaped in the likeness of, is Jesus Christ. The one whom we read in Philippians 2, who, though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is who we're imitating. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're imitating that. That's who we're called. That's your vocation, to imitate this one. It's in those footsteps in which you walk. You're doing the same things that he did so as to be shaped in his likeness. And if we're being shaped in his likeness as our calling, 
we can expect to do the very things that he did. And this is why Paul tells us in, in Philippians 2, which I just quoted from, that he did good things and, and, and was mistreated for doing so, so much so that he suffered death, even death on a cross. And the end result of that suffering, very next verse, Philippians 2, 10 to 11, 9, 10 to 11, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, through the suffering of Christ, God the Father was glorified. And if we're walking in those footsteps, not only can we expect to suffer, but as the end result of the suffering, we will be made like Christ. And God will be glorified through that to the glory of God the Father. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, there's a question that is asked, what is sanctification? And usually as a church, what we say is sanctification is the process whereby more and more you're made to be like Jesus. So Peter is saying, you suffer because you're being made more and more to be like Jesus. But here's the formal response to that question in in the Shorter Catechism. It's lifted right out of our passage today. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live under righteousness. Die into sin and live under righteousness. And so Peter's answer to suffering at the hands of your superior, listen, it's this, listen, you go through this not for nothing, right? There's a purpose behind it, and, and it's not a reactionary response, it's not God saying, well, let me see how I can make the best out of this situation. No, there's, there's a measure of an intentionality to it, purposefulness and design. It's the very means by which you will be made to be like Christ. Your mistreatment shapes you into the mold of Christ by more and more dying unto sin and living under righteousness. That's what mistreatment pulls out of you. That's Peter's explanation here. You suffer because Christ suffered. And you are being made to be like Christ. Now, I know for some of you, probably maybe most of you, dare I say it, if not all of you, it doesn't make it any easier to know that. Is that the only reason? I wish, I wish there was more. It seems like God in all his wisdom might have been able to accomplish that in any number of ways. Couldn't he have made me like Jesus through some other means absent of suffering? Yes, he certainly could have. But there's another reason. There is another reason he brings us through suffering, and it's also right here in our passage. Peter opens the door to the explanation by mentioning dying to sin. But then verse 25, he says this, and you have to listen very closely to what Peter is saying here. He says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It almost seems like a non sequitur. You suffer, you endure hardship, the mistreatment by your superior makes you walk in the footsteps of Christ for you are straying like sheep. How does straying like sheep answer the problem of mistreatment by my superior? Peter is saying, listen, church. Listen, oh, you sufferer. Your biggest problem isn't suffering. Your biggest problem is sin. You wandered away from the shepherd. You put distance between you and God. That's what sin is. And despite our sin, God pulls us near. 
Though we were separated from God, from sin, because of sin, he pulls us near. He pulls us into intimacy. It's not just that he makes you good enough to be in the same room as he is, but he pulls you close. He pulls you in tight. Overseer of your souls is meant to evoke intimacy, not not just a passing grade. Have you noticed the way that we hug one another sometimes? We, we hug each other differently. There are some people where you say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll concede and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll give the hug, but I'm going to put as much distance as possible to, to make it still qualify as a hug, right? And then there are others whom you hug, and it's not just a hug, it's an, it's an embrace. And you hold them tight, and it's not awkward. It's an expression of an inner truth. Do you know how the Lord holds you tight? Do you know how he pulls you in close? Listen to this. This is Ecclesiastes 7, 2-4. The author Solomon is contrasting wisdom and folly, and he says this. Maybe this is not what you would expect. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart is wise in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. What? It's better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting? Sorrow is better than laughter, says who? Let me read for you something by R.C. Sproul, uh, who was writing about this passage in his book called Surprised by Suffering. He says this, We may go to the house of mirth to a party where we have fun, kick back, have a good time, and enjoy entertainment. Parties are not all that serious. We don't have to be contemplative in order to enjoy ourselves there. Certainly there is a time to laugh, a time to dance, a time to celebrate, a time to have a party. But how much do we learn in those circumstances? Times of mirth do very little for the good of our souls. However, when we go to the house of mourning, We go to an environment where our hearts can be equipped with transcendent wisdom. There's a pithy saying that tells us God sometimes puts us on our backs to give us a chance to look up. It sometimes seems that it it is only when suffering, pain, or grief invades our lives that we begin to be sober and direct our thinking toward the things of God in a significant way. The house of mourning has a way of prompting us to do that. In other words, if I could summarize it in this way. There's a healing nature to suffering. Pain, sorrow, and grief can turn the believer's eyes to the Father in a way that blessing and abundance cannot. Only from a place of deficiency can we begin to contemplate and appreciate the holy nature of God and the miracle of having him bring us near to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. In our sin, because of our sin, we lose a sense of God's holiness. And as long as we're on this side of heaven, we'll never see a complete image of God. At best we can hope for is a narrow view. But through suffering, God widens the view and opens it in such a way that allows us to see a more detailed image of who he is in a way that blessing in abundance cannot. In Zephaniah 3.17, we're told, The Lord your God is in your midst, 
a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you know the Lord sings over you? In your suffering, the Lord exults over you with loud singing. Or as C.S. Lewis said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, consciousness, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sin made us deaf. And pain opens up our ears, returning you to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When you are mistreated for doing good, you're, you're granted a new lens with which to see God. I know many of you here have children. If there's something that's plainly evident whenever someone visits Cool Springs, it's that there are children everywhere. See? <laughs> there are children everywhere. So, so with this many parents in the room, I know there have been occasions where you've been in a, in a store, a park, or somewhere in public, and you lose sight of your child. You can't see them. You've lost them. The thought of loss is, is crippling. And how much deeper the love, the joy, the immense gratitude when you find them again. You only experience that level of love having tasted the sting of loss. And I know there are still others of you who have tasted loss because you've lost someone and they didn't come back. And you see, you have to frame this subject in the context of everything else that Peter has said too. You have an eternal inheritance. And embedded in that is a promise from Jesus Christ that he will one day wipe away every tear from your eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. It's why someone like Tim Keller, whom we lost just this last week, who was as near to death as you possibly could be, and amongst his last words in that state were, I can't wait to see Jesus. On the verge of losing everything this world tells us is valuable, he says, I, I cannot wait. Even the loss you experience right now will be brought back to you in Jesus Christ. And the fact that you've experienced loss now amplifies the joy you'll know, the glory that you'll see when Christ comes to make all things new. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that through it, we can see glimpses of you that we otherwise wouldn't see. You've not left us to, to grope in darkness, but you've given us sight of, of what we'll one day be able to see complete. So help us in times of defeat, persecution, suffering, and, and loss to feel your nearness and be comforted by your loud singing. And may we be reminded that through our trial, you pull us near to make us like your son. Thank you for Jesus that through his blood and righteousness you brought us near. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.